0: This is the Uncertain Times Podcast from Forbes
1: Books Radio. Hola, it's Joe Partavila, and the start of the pandemic must feel like a thousand years ago. But if you can recall, around March of 2020, all of professional and collegiate sports were shut down for the foreseeable future. No one knew even if they would play sports again in 2020. But there was one league that was able to recover quickly and get back on the court just a couple of months after the pandemic broke out. No, it wasn't the NBA or Major League Baseball. It was the American Cornhole League. Yes, cornhole, that bean toss game you play in the backyard or before a football game. The American Cornhole League has seen exponential growth over the last few years, and that growth continued way after the pandemic. And joining me today is the founder and commissioner of the ACL, the American Cornhole League. His name is Stacy Moore. Hey, Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Hey Joe, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. And if you don't mind indulging me and anyone who's listening right now about the history of cornhole, because we're all familiar with it in some shape or form, whether it's you call it the bean toss game or wh- whatever name you had growing up, but how did American cornhole become a thing before you made it into a really big thing?
0: Right. I think the history of it is is a little bit under uh, or debatable. Okay. So, The Ohio area likes to claim that they're the originators. I think there's actually some people in Germany that like to claim (laughs) that they're the originators of of cornhole. I think there were various different types of boards that had a hole in them where people threw something through the hole. I would say my guess is uh, that the Ohio area probably refined the original designs or original game to to what we know now, which is basically a a four by two uh, board with a, with a hole in it that people throw beanbags through. So I'm going to give the credit to, to Ohio, and then obviously
1: it became a massive uh, tailgating game from there. And how far back are we going with Ohio? Do you have like a circuit date that they're saying that they were the first ones to, or refine it, as you say?
0: I believe it's somewhere in the, in the 20 to 30 year range.
1: Oh, okay. All right, cool. All right, so this becomes a very popular game, as you mentioned. In tailgating, I think now it's it's illegal to not play cornhole while you're tailgating. When did you fall in love with this sport and think that you could make it something bigger?
0: Yeah, I started playing at tailgates uh, some, probably around 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, at NC State football games, picked up a bag, had a beer in one hand, uh, tried to just keep it on the board and enjoyed it, just enjoyed it as a, as a tailgating game. But then... I became a professional tailgater, so to speak. And I, <laughs> and I saw more and more people playing cornhole and we started doing sponsor activations around tailgating games. And I just saw that people played cornhole way more seriously than any other tailgating game. They were just getting all fired up about it. Then I got to learn there was some actual strategy to it. And then I got to learn there was a group of, of players that were traveling around playing in these money tournaments that were forming and, and that sort of thing. Just made me second guess, kind of, is this a tailgating game or can it be a legitimate sport? And the more I watched it, the more I talked to some of the most competitive players out there, I just became convinced that that I could make it uh, a professional sport.
1: Cool. And a little sidebar, did you ever become a really good cornhole player?
0: Never, never. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I'm mediocre at best, and all the pros will beat me twenty-one zero any day of the week.
1: Okay, well, awesome. Then you just you, you see that there's something there with cornhole, but you didn't just jump into this willy nilly. You have a pretty extensive history as an investor and entrepreneur. So, what kind of skills or kind of jobs that you have that led you to believe that you could be the person to make American cornhole go? mainstream. Probably
0: one of the most relevant experiences that I had was, was right out of the gate when I was graduating college. Uh, I had the opportunity to work for the Greensboro City Gators and the Global Basketball Association. Uh, so my family had decided to, to take a shot on this, on this fledgling semi-pro basketball league that was going to have international teams as well as U.S. teams. And so I got to be a part of, of that right out of the gate. And I was all excited. I thought I was going to be in basketball my entire career. I'm a huge sports fan, huge basketball fan. And so it was awesome. But uh, I quickly learned that it's a business. Our franchise made it just one year and we shut down. So it was a uh, failing experience uh, right out of the gate. Uh, So having a failing experience in the sports world that early on, I think, um, helped me a lot with, with, with what I'm doing today. And and then combining that with just being able to work uh, with a lot of other entrepreneurs in a lot of different industries uh, along the way, uh, including you know, running a mutual fund for for Bank of America on the small cap side, and and just been kind of a risk taker uh, most of my life. And um, and the more that that I got excited about cornhole, I decided to start divesting of all my other interests and. And get focused on uh, on cornhole and making this uh, a professional sport.
1: <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, and It is funny. The image that you conjured up in my brain of your basketball days was that Will Ferrell movie Semi Pro. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar yes. with it, but it definitely the way you painted that picture was I could definitely see like a Will Ferrell type with a big headband uh, dribbling a basketball awkwardly. I mean, is is, is is that a pretty accurate representation of what you were going through in those days?
0: Yeah, I think that they might have actually modeled some of that movie after what happened in, in the Global Basketball Association because <laughs> I remember being at a game in uh, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and there was actually a wedding at halftime uh, <laughs> of, of one of those games, and it was uh, it was interesting. We played with a white basketball, and and you know a white basketball gets dirty pretty easily. I'm yeah. not sure uh, what happened, but you know Mike Storen was the commissioner. He was obviously one of the influencers in the ABA and actually credited with inventing the red, white, and blue basketball. So we were all excited about the white basketball going into the season. And then we realized how fast it got dirty and kind of like, "What? don't think this was a great idea.
1: Oh, that's awesome. I love that story. (laughs) Um, All right. So you say you're a risk taker and obviously sound like you're a risk taker. So when you decide to present the American Cornhole League as an idea to people, were they like, Oh boy! Here comes Stacy again. He's got another crazy idea. What What was your reaction like in your inner circle?
0: Yeah, well, people thought I was crazy, right? All my friends and family were like, "Of all the things you've invested in or had ideas about, this may be the dumbest." <laughs> but uh, I wasn't asking for money um, from anyone else, and and um, mainly said, "Hey, friends and family, I'm doing this. If If you guys are interested, more than welcome. But you know, don't have to be a part of it. Everyone." Opted not to be a part of it, which I'm grateful for now. Uh, so because <laughs> I didn't have to give up any equity out of the gate, it turned out to be a, a big blessing for me that no one believed in me early on on this venture.
1: And so, talk to me about those early days because the idea of starting a sports league, a professional sports league, seems pretty daunting. Uh, Stacy, you say you're you're big basketball and obviously football fan from being going to NC State because every once in a while they're good, uh, but. <laughs> Did you think about like, oh my God, am I am I crazy here that I can become a, a league on par, or you know, eventually be on par with you know, baseball, football, basketball, hockey, even soccer? Well,
0: number one, I, I never thought that we would be in those conversations, and it, it's just been a it's been a wild ride that that we've been able to get there, uh, and we're in some of those conversations now, obviously with our TV deals, but we're certainly not there from a revenue standpoint. Uh, so we still have a long ways to go on the revenue side to get up. To anywhere close of those top leagues but uh, hopefully that will come in due time and our and our players can can make a full-time living playing cornhole but yeah it's um, you know I just basically did it from the ground up so I was out there running tournaments uh, in local bars where some nights you know two people would show up other nights 20 people would show up and then all of a sudden a hundred people showed up or 200 people started showing up and then I got and then I said okay now we're we're on to something, right? I think the critical decision was making a partnership with my partner who developed the software for our league to manage all the scores and stats around it uh, really early on in the process. I, I knew that was going to be important. And so basically getting buy-in from, from Sean and Madden, the developers, on the initial developers on the software side, was a, was a key milestone moment for me. And, uh, you know, they put in a lot of sweat equity. Uh, to develop that software with me and my vision so that we could capture all the scores and stats and, and control that all of ourselves uh, internally without having to rely on third-party software. And then obviously convincing ESPN to to give this sport a shot on, on television uh, was certainly the, the second milestone event.
1: Well, well Stacey, let's step back and talk about the idea of the software of keeping stats because I don't even know if you thought of this at the time, but like now that I'm thinking, I'm like, yeah, duh, if you're going to start a league, you got to keep track of all this stuff. Like if you go back to baseball pre 1900s, they can go back to newspaper clippings and pull up stats. So when did you realize, like, oh boy, this is a lot bigger than just setting up a tournament or or just showing up at a bar and setting up these (laughs) bean bags? Did you realize that all this other back end stuff was going to have to be involved in it?
0: Yeah, early on, that was, you know, that was one of the. I said, to my, I said, if you want to make this a sport, you got to have scores and stats. It's a yeah, foundation yeah. of developing any legitimate sport. Otherwise, it's just a game. So I knew that we had to do that. And I did look at third-party solutions uh, for the first year. We used some third-party solutions, and I was just like, "This is not gonna. This is not gonna get us to where we need to be to be a legitimate sport." And uh, fortunately, I met. Sean and Madden, and told them my vision and the types of information I wanted to capture and how I wanted to do it. And they were like, sounds cool. We can do that for you. And, um, and you know, they had a passion for cornhole as well. And so it, it's just, it has just worked out really well. And I'm, I'm blessed to have met those guys and uh, certainly appreciate their
1: support. Huh. And, you know, we are a bit of a copycat society. We like to see what someone else does well and either build off it or just literally rip it off. But what kind of model did you sort of build American Cornhole League after because I'm, I'm, the, the thing that initially comes to mind is sort of like uh, PGA where it's yes. like it's these mobile tournaments where uh, players travel and they play individual sports and and I know I know you do you do have like um you have you have like two man teams and such but was that sort of the model as well that you were chasing after that sort of PGA thing
0: So I, I definitely looked at other professional leagues and probably more tennis than oh, okay, right, sure. than, than PGA and really that's because I I grew up as a competitive tennis player. As a lot of people don't know in high school I was I was pretty competitive. So a lot of of how I initially structured the ACL was similar to the USTA where you had different skill levels and people could rate themselves and things like that. So took a lot from tennis, took some things from golf, took some things from bowling. Uh, those are probably, you know, the top 3 sports that that have influenced me from a from an operations and league operations standpoint. And then from a marketing standpoint, obviously NBA and NFL try to get some good marketing ideas and, and techniques uh, from those guys. Cause they're certainly the best of the best.
1: Hmm. And you mentioned the ESPN deal, which I think as Stacy, I don't know how active you are in social media, but I think at first there was a lot of sarcastic and ironic tweets about Cornhole being on ESPN. So how did you get them involved in this, and for them to take a chance on you? how big were you at that point, where ESPN was like, "All right, we'll take a flyer on this one."
0: Yeah, I was. You know, we were we were not big at all. I, you know, we had somewhere between I would say ten to thirty directors that were running tournaments for us around the United States. We had our our first season was a half a season, but I, I wanted to I really wanted to have that ESPN mark on on our championships on our first championships you know as like if we can just get any kind of espn mark whatsoever it, it would be awesome thinking that you know obviously we're gonna have to go to espn three and try to convince <laughs> espn three to give this a shot right on the digital platform and that's you know that's basically the route we took and um so we're able to say you know hey you know no risk espn just we think, uh, you know, we, we have the software that does scores and stats around it. We've got a production company. I think we can put together uh, something compelling. Um, you know, we're not, we're not looking for any money from you. We just want a shot to be able to, to display our sport uh, on your platform.
1: Now, there was no money involved, but they were picking up the production costs, right?
0: No, no. No? No, I was paying the production
1: costs. Wow. Well, yeah, so, yeah, definitely ESPN, no risk. All they do is flip a switch and they have cordhole on their thing. That's, wow. So if you don't mind sharing, how big of an investment was that for you guys for a nascent league? I mean, that's got to be in the millions, right?
0: No, it wasn't that much. So, I mean, the fortunate thing about our sport is that it probably does not cost The same amount to produce is obviously like an NFL game or or an NBA game uh, and things like that because our court is extremely small. We can cover it very well with with five cameras and with technology and the way technology is going, it can get cheaper and cheaper to do a linear quality, high quality telecast. Wow. So hopefully it comes across as, yes. you know, this is a million-dollar production. That's what it
1: does. I mean, seriously, it did. <laughs> so when did they realize after they put it on the digital tier, they were like, wow, this, this could actually work on the flagship? Yes. How quick did that happen?
0: It, I mean, it, so it happened our next season, which, you know, I was thinking when I drew up my kind of original internal business plan, you know, I set a goal. I said I would love to be on linear television within three to five years. And Sounds like you beat that. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so it's probably about six weeks out of our second championships. Um, I got a call, and we had done a couple of other ESPN three telecasts during our next season. Uh, I think we had done like maybe three, three or four with some of our events, um, just kind of continuing to build our relationship with ESPN. And I just, I got a random call where our, our my contact over there said, "Hey." You know the powers that be were kind of looking at your digital telecast that you did at your last championships, and I know your other ones coming up. And we actually have a spot on ESPN Two on Saturday during your championship weekend. You know, would you like to give it a shot? <laughs> did
1: awesome. you have a like a coronary at that point when that call came in because you probably were not expecting that whatsoever?
0: Yeah, no, I had to. I had to try to not die laughing, <laughs> right, or just like or just be in shock. And I was like. Yeah, you know, I think I'd probably be interested in that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you put your businessman hat. Let me think about that, Mister yeah, ESPN. Right, right. Yeah, I got right, I got Fox I was, Sports on the other line. Let me see if they yeah. uh, want to. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Let's see. I've got a ton of offers right now, so you know, I'm have to get back to you. Um, no, but certainly that was a that was a great call to get. I had no idea what I was getting myself into um, going from a ESPN three um, digital production to a linear production. That's when. The cost really escalated, and um, you know, and we had six weeks to pull it off. And oh, and gosh. the current production company that I had lined up to do our digital telecast going into our world championships did did not meet spec to do a linear broadcast. Second production company I identified that I got a price from that I wanted to use did not meet spec to oh, to, to to do a broadcast. But again, you know, the the trial with with, with ESPN was. Was all on uh, our dime with, you know, we had built our sponsor model based on the fact we were going to do a, uh, a digital broadcast, not a, not a linear broadcast. And, um, and so I was scrambling at the last minute to just try to lessen my losses uh, the best way I could. And that's actually when I ran into Johnsonville and uh, got Johnsonville on board as a sponsor right before... Um, right before that event at the last minute, and Johnsonville has been with me ever since.
1: Wow, and let's, let's talk turkey, or I should say sausage here. So uh, if, if you watch Cornhole now, it's safe to assume that Johnsonville is your, your number one sponsor. You guys got Johnsonville all over the place there. Um, talk to us about this arrangement. It, did it Was it something like they sort of baby-stepped it? They were like, hey, let's go for a few months and then like extend it. Like, Talk to me how that relationship built out.
0: Yeah. So it was basically, you know, it was a one event deal. I didn't have a relationship there. I, I, I sent a cold email. I didn't have much time and I really, so I picked out five different brands that I sent a, a cold email to that I thought, Hey, you know, this may fit. Um, you know, I knew that we would probably not have much luck with, with kind of the, the super large sports market, you know, the Budweiser. The Pepsis, and the Cokes, Cokes. Yeah. The, yeah, and those, yeah. I, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to get, I'm like, who, Who's like pretty involved in sports and doing some sports marketing? That's kind of not in that that level that I might be able to to get it in with. And who? What's a you know, tailgating brand? Outdoors, consumer goods, you know, food. And uh, you know, Johnsonville was was one of the five on on my list that I came up with. And uh, cold emailed um, person over there, and and he responded and. And, and he was like, you know, you piqued my interest with the word cornhole and uh, took my call. <laughs> and I was just honest. I was like, look, I just, you know, this is a last minute deal, a last minute opportunity on ESPN2. I have no idea what it's worth. And to be honest with you, I'm pretty much just willing to take whatever's in your budget to, to start a relationship with you. And um, how much money are you willing to risk to, to kind of be the, the title sponsor of this broadcast? Obviously, it was. I mean, it was a super low number that we laugh about today. And uh, you know, I think he's credited. Certainly, he's got the best ROI in sports marketing <laughs> within Johnsonville, and uh, he might have the best ROI in in, in sports history with uh, with the investment that he made in that broadcast and how it went viral and uh, and kind of the immediate return that that they got from being a part of that first uh, ESPN two telecast.
1: So it's safe to assume that you guys have renegotiated that deal, correct? We,
0: yeah, we've, we've renegotiated <laughs> it a, a couple of times over. And, and uh, you know, we just finished up our, uh, the first year of a, of a, of a two-year deal. Um, you know, so they're on board with us uh, for next season. They've just continually increased their investment, not only sponsorship-wise with us, but in terms of the retail promotion and how they've been supporting uh, the ACL uh, through their social media platforms and and the content that they develop and the other activations that they have. So, you know, when they're sending the big taste grill around to fairs and festivals, they want to have an ACL pro out there teaching people cornhole. They are a sponsor of the SEC and they always integrate us into the SEC Fanfare. In fact, we did an ESPNU telecast specifically for them from the SEC Fanfare. So, just the depth um, and support that they've given us over the years has has made a material difference in, in our ability to, to be able to grow this sport and wow. the ACL brand.
1: Oh, wow, and an ACC guy like yourself was okay with getting involved with the SEC?
0: <laughs> yes, it's okay, yes. I mean, you know, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're both in the South.
1: Okay, true, right. You stick together. You know, it's so funny, as you describe that, it seems like something, like your relationship with Johnsonville, doesn't seem like something that happens in modern era, like that's something that happened in old timey baseball, you know, with, with a guy reaching out to somebody else and sponsoring. It. It's so organic and so authentic that it's like it almost it's almost seems hard to believe that it was just like a cold email. Like, hey, we got this cornhole thing. You want to get involved somehow? I mean, it's, it's cr- like when you tell yeah. that story to people who are either startups or entrepreneurs, are they like, that can't be real. It doesn't sound real.
0: Well, he told me that, you know, afterwards, uh, uh, I never gave his name out, but, you know, people were we're, you know, I think figuring it out somehow, and, and he's like, I've gotten more messages from startup sports <laughs> leagues than ever in my life after we did this sponsorship uh, with you, and he's and uh, you know, and he enjoys laughing about it, but it really, you know, I didn't know the entire story behind Johnsonville when I when I first uh, messaged them, but obviously the fact that they're a family-owned business. Had no idea that they were actually as big as they are, and uh, in how international they are. Uh, when, you probably would I, never
1: reached out, Stace, You'd be Like, man, I thought there was just a little mom and pop shop. <laughs> they're a giant yeah, conglomerate.
0: Yeah, they were. They were a lot bigger than I originally thought. And but then, like I said, I think I think their values, I think their culture. Uh, you know, with their they, you know their employees, they they call their members. We actually ran a member event and and we made it a broadcast event for their members where they got to come and play on a broadcast court i just think that their values fit really well with with our values and and just basically you know our sport the family values that that our sport has the fact that anyone can play anyone can win being all-inclusive i think it just ended up just being a much much better partnership than i ever imagined right i think a lot of sports marketing is how much dollars are you going to give me for, for the eyeballs? And the situation with Johnsonville has, has been both uh, professional and, and very
1: personal for me. That's awesome. Uh, you know, it's funny, and I don't mean this as a slight, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs... nativity being naive is actually a good superpower because you don't realize what you're up against and i i feel like that works with you stace like you didn't real i mean you were just like yeah i'm gonna try the sports league i'm gonna i'm gonna reach out to johnsonville do you think that's sort of one of the reasons that's fueled the success of the acl is the fact that you're not one of these people that's going to be like getting so down deep into your own head being like i don't know if i should do this i don't think i should be reaching out to these companies is is that something that sort of fueled you as you've grown the league and grown as a human
0: Yeah, I believe so. Um, I certainly have my days where I'll second and third guess and fourth guess uh, some things. And I will, you know, people that know me will will certainly accuse me of overanalyzing from time to time. But I think I get to a point where where I get clarity. And it's just, uh, for me, it's been interesting that I just feel like uh, with this cornhole uh, business, the sport, and the business aspect of it. To be honest, I, I, I feel that I have more clarity about this venture and, and opportunity than than anything that I've had in my career. And so that's just giving me a lot of confidence, I think, just to just to go out there and put myself out there and be myself. And then people that gravitate and, and agree with that and want to get on board with it, have gotten on board with it in a big way. and And, and that's been a Like I said, been a blessing for me.
1: What a great, I mean, this is such a great story, Stacey. And you know, the one thing I do love about the Cornhole League and the way you present it, and I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, but please let me know, is the gravity and the seriousness of these matches that you show on television and the fact that you guys aren't winking at the audience or have any taste of irony. The way it looks, like, this is a real sport. This is not just a bunch of... Guys who are or ladies that are half cocked, you know, with after a couple of middle of lights throwing beanbags. This is a real sport. Was that intentional on your part?
0: Yeah, well, I think for for people to take us as a serious sport, we had to be able to we have to be able to display it as, as a real sport. Whether someone's had no beers or they've had a few beers before they step on the court, when they do, they get really serious, right? And it's really intense and especially at the highest level, uh, where it becomes as much of a mental game, just like a lot of other sports. You know, all these pros can can pretty much execute any shot. Uh, some can do certain shots better than, than others. Just like in the NBA, some people are better at shooting three pointers than others. And so, we certainly have our pros that that have an expertise in, in a certain shot. But yeah, I think the seriousness and the intensity uh, that we've been able to to show through our telecast has made a ton of difference. And then a lot of that. Is a credit to to Trey Ryder who who calls the action for us on our ESPN and CBS telecast. He is just so naturally good at uh, explaining to people what they're about to see. Whether he's working the telestrator, he he's kind of inside the players for the most part. Every now and then he'll get he'll get a shot wrong that a player is about to take, but you know for the most part he knows the type of shot that these players are going to try to execute in a given situation. And he's able to let the viewers know kind of what to anticipate coming up. And I think that's part of what sucks people into our telecast is is how he's able to present um, our sport so that they're actually seeing it,
1: but he's able to make them understand it. Yeah, the one thing people may not realize if they've never watched is that the game moves really fast and you need that announcer because a lot of times these, ma- these guys are chucking these bags so quickly they're like, and the scores are going up fast. I'm like, "What the hell is going on?" And so, luckily, there's someone there to guide us through it because it, it's a pretty quick-moving game.
0: Yeah. In fact, my aunt, she is she she when she watches a broadcast, she still says, "I have no idea how to score this game <laughs> or what's going on," but uh, because I think it it does move a little bit too fast for her. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, you're you're exactly right, and and I think that pace of it, I think the fact that that we can show multiple matches or basically the end of a, of a tournament during a a two hour telecast um, gets people to follow along. So that's, you know, one of the common things that we hear is, you know, like I said, I turned, I tuned into this thing as a joke and then I found that I couldn't turn it off (laughs) because, because you get kind of sucked into the storyline or you end up finding a favorite player who, you know, won the semifinal match. And now you want to see if he or she can win the final match. Wow um and so i think that that we've done you know a really good job from from that
1: standpoint with our with our two hour shows and i mentioned in the open that one of the only sports that continued live coverage during the pandemic was the american cornhole league weren't you guys on like something like over 100 times over the past year how were yeah. you able to maintain the league and keep up with these events while this pandemic was raging,
0: yeah, it was. Uh, it was crazy. You know, when I've told the story before, you know, we had March. I think it's March thirteenth.
1: Yeah, Black uh, Friday or you know, Friday thirteenth. A lot of people yeah. make that day. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so that Thursday before we were set up in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, hundred and eighty thousand square feet. I think we had close to, hundred and sixty sets of boards set up. It was it was going to be our largest uh, public event to date. Uh, one of our ESPN telecasts. You know, we had everything set up, and um, and you know, all week the city was like, you know, we're behind you. We're going to do this event. We're going to do this event. And then it was probably around 8 p.m. on a on a Thursday when they said we're not going to do the event. <laughs> <laughs> we're just like, oh my god. We had you know thousands of people that had traveled to Cleveland uh, to play cornhole with us that weekend, and they had already arrived on Thursday and been. Drinking beer on Thursday. Yeah. By the time they got the news, so you can imagine that uh, they
1: continued to drink beers on. <laughs> they continued to
0: drink, drink beer for a different reason, yes. and and probably said a lot of things, bad things about the ACL that uh, that that we you know we don't want to repeat on air for sure. Right. But, uh You know, I can certainly you know I appreciate how angry they were because I was too, and I was you know I was as disappointed as as everyone else, and you know felt responsible and accountable for all these people that had you know, spent their hard-earned money to come and play, you know, in our event because, you know, that's what, you know, a lot of our serious players and competitive players, they have normal jobs. It's middle America and, you know, their time away from work, cornhole's like a vacation for them. And, And this is something that they enjoy doing competitively. So, you know, instead of going down to Florida to the beach, they're going to an ACL cornhole tournament. And so in a lot of ways, you know, they're deciding to, to take their vacation money and invest it in the ACL and, and a cornhole event. And I take that you know seriously and personally. And that happened to a lot of people in this Cleveland event. And um, when that happened, all of a sudden we're like, man, everything we've built has just gone down the toilet. You know, we can't do broadcasts. We can't do, I mean, we're like, what are we going to do? We're going to lose our sponsors because we can't do broadcasts. Johnsonville is going to be angry with me. Um, right everyone else and it was like gloom and doom immediately there and so you know probably i licked my wounds for probably three days or so and then i was just like i i woke up and i said well the best thing about our sport is that we have a social distance component to it and so i'm going to make sure that we're the first live sport back on television
1: so you were not stewing like you were back in your Greensboro City Gators days. You were like, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm pushing through. I'm going to make this happen. So you mentioned the fact that there is distancing. The players really don't have to be right next to each other or like a few feet away from each other. So once this idea kicks in your mind that weekend, from that point forward, when were you able to get that first event off the ground?
0: Yeah, so I think, uh, I think it was the third week of May. So you're talking March, you're basically talking within two months, we were back live on television. Wow. So during that time, we had adjusted our rules. Obviously, we developed a mask policy. We had people stepping out of the box. We had a bag retriever. And so, we, I mean, we came up with all these rules and, and pitched them to ESPN. They got run of the flagpole to Disney. Uh, you know, you still had a lot of states shut down and this and that. And obviously, ESPN had a ton of time, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no time available. They couldn't show that Michael Jordan documentary one more time. They had something else to show.
0: <laughs> right. So, you know, yeah. So right there during the pandemic, starting in May, in end the of, end of May, is, is when we had seven straight weeks on ESPN main network for four hours uh, a weekend. And yeah, we just came up. We just created a special tour. We had a... A limited amount of players, so instead of having thousands, we were having, you know, no more than than thirty-two or sixty-four pros at at one of these events that we were putting on for TV. There was no crowd, right? There was no crowd. Right. Uh, yeah, there was no crowd at all during during that run, and uh, everyone was masked up, socially distanced. Never had a single outbreak, and so yeah, so that was it. Was a crazy time because there were. <laughs> With, within there, sometimes we kind of identified the areas that we felt like would be the most open, that we would be able to, um, to do an event. And,
1: um, oh, you're saying like certain cities would be a little more open yeah. at that time because that was early in the pandemic where I think a lot of people assumed, oh, this is a New York and California problem. I guess we can do things otherwise. But So you right. went to cities that were like, okay, we have low case counts here. We can do that. And what was that challenge like? Was it uh, basically another one of those uh, Stacey Moore cold emails? Hey, we want to come <laughs> to your city?
0: Yeah, well, the first two were, were extremely uh, probably difficult. They were the most difficult both from an ESPN standpoint and a government standpoint. And the first one we did was was in South Carolina, right where, where our headquarters is and, and where we do our, our world championships. And we were able to get special sign off uh, from the governor and from the city uh, to be able to say, hey, you know, we're able to do this event,
1: social distance, we're not going to have any crowds. Um, well, knowing Governor McMaster's, it probably didn't take long. He probably <laughs> hit that check mark before. He probably no, didn't even yeah, read the whole so- thing. He's like, sure, let's go. <laughs> South Carolina
0: yeah, is so open. Was, yeah, so North Carolina, we probably wouldn't have been able to get it done. Yeah, uh, but South Carolina, we were able to get it done. And then our, uh, you know, our second event, um, we had identified Texas. Right, one of the more sure, absolutely. That we
1: don't have do. to read that either. Come on over, we're <laughs> open.
0: And we were trying to do Houston, and we were actually so we we had we were in our car with our trailer heading towards Texas um, for the event the next week. We thought we were going to be in Houston, uh, but we didn't have a venue locked down at all, and we ended up in—we couldn't get it done in Houston, and we ended up in Galveston. But we were literally in a truck with a trailer carrying our equipment <laughs> to yeah, run a that's... tournament, having no idea wow. what our venue was going to be the second week. Uh, so that was pretty crazy.
1: I mean, you've done so much in your career. Has sort of that moment during the pandemic and, and through it? Was that sort of like your crowning achievement, do you think, personally for your legacy? like Because as you know, a lot of companies shut down during the pandemic or just couldn't survive. How proud are you of the fact that you were able to sort of ride the storm and keep the league going and really keep that momentum? Because up until the you know March of 2020, you guys were rolling full steam ahead with multiple TV appearances, uh, touring all over the country. The pandemic hits, and a lot of companies might be like, all right, let's just pack up the tents, pack up the bags. We're going home. So, that's got to be one of like at the end of, you know, at the end of your career, Stacey, so when you walk over you're like, "Man, I'm really proud of the way my team handled that situation."
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I was able to reflect a, a little bit on it after we got through that that seven straight week run and it was it was exhausting, but yet yet rewarding. But by the same token, we still you know, had a season to finish, and then we had to get our next season uh, underway because we, you know, with cornhole, our point system goes year-round. We, we decided to schedule a month off in between last season and this season that just started this past week. You know, we're basically cornhole nonstop, so there's very little time to to reflect and, and, and kind of soak it all in. But after our World Championships in, in August, um, you know, I, I, I did spend some some personal time just just saying, man, what a what an amazing two-year run it's been. You know, the fact that we were able to take a negative and not only survive, but to thrive through this pandemic. You know, I think there's a lot of companies out there that, you know, you're either on the really good side of the pandemic or the really bad side of the pandemic. Yeah.
1: It really was like an exaggerated recession where, you know how it is, the big get bigger and the small die. Uh, The pandemic was sort of just the the bigger version of of a normal recession where you saw these big companies like the Walmarts, Costcos, Amazons just – their, their stock valuation just exploded, and then you see in small businesses around the around the country closing their doors. So you, I mean, and and you're really neither one of those things. You're not a, a big business or a small business. You're sort of like one of those people that are in the middle there, and you still yeah. find a way through. Yeah, we were
0: on. Uh, certainly, we would be on the the smaller side of that, but we were able to make some significant. Uh, you know, leaps and bounds. And, you know, we just we got on the radar of a lot of people, including, you know, Jim Simmons and John Thompson, the third that that we just announced that investment uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they, you know, by being on, on ESPN during that time, we had several people reaching out to me saying, hey, we'd like to get involved in the ACL. Are you, are you interested in taking on a partner? And uh, I felt like it was the right time in our growth and our evolution to identify who that group was going to be that I was that I was going to to partner with to to help take us to the next level.
1: And you guys made business news last month uh, talking about the John Thompson thing, where the former coach of uh, Georgetown University, son of the legendary Georgetown coach, decided to become a minority owner in the American Cornhole League. So talk about that relationship, how you guys got introduced, and what it means for him to be an owner in the American Cornhole League.
0: Yeah. So, you know, while we were on this run during the pandemic and coming out of it, we had a lot of new eyeballs on us. The fact that we were on four hours on on ESPN and John and and his partner, uh, Jim Simmons, uh, were one of those guys. And they reached out to an investment banker partner of theirs, uh, Steve Horowitz from Inner Circle Sports. And Steve's team over at Inner Circle just sent me an email saying, hey, you know, we've got some people that would be interested in and taking a look at, at American Cornhole League, if you're if you're interested in, in taking on some some equity money, and uh, you know I got about three or four of those type of emails from from different groups and different people, um, and so it was it was kind of nice to have to, to to not be someone who was out there looking for money, but money was coming to me, and and so we just started I just started exploring uh, the opportunities and and talking to to different people, and immediately. You know, the first conversation I had with, with Jim and John via, via Zoom, it just felt really natural and really positive. And I just had a, I just had a great initial vibe from the very first uh, conversation. And, and then with Steve at Inner Circle Sports, it, it's just been great um, working with them, going through the due diligence process over the last six months and getting it to the point of an actual investment that we've been able to announce and, and formalize this partnership. Brought a lot of positive relationships uh, to the ACL in a very short
1: period of time. And how crazy is it now that you're the one getting the cold emails? It's no longer Stacy Moore sending him out. You're, uh, there are junior Stacy Moores reaching out to you. That must be very weird.
0: It's a little bit weird, but it's still, you know, because I was always a buy side guy where I was an investor and other people and, you know, I ran a mutual fund and, and things like that. But then, you know, when I started the ACL, I had to become more of a, a sales side guy, which was out of my comfort zone and something I've never done. It was it was really cool. It, it was it was very humbling, especially being a basketball fan. And uh, and, and John Thompson the third ends up ends up being the one to get one of the guys interested. in, in Cornhole, Georgetown was actually a big nemesis of of NC State, yeah. especially back in in 1989, where they called a a walk on Chris Gortiani. That was a year that we should have won the national championship, probably. And 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 that's when you know John's dad was was the coach there at Georgetown, and I saw up and down that. That he must have paid the refs to, to make that call, so that uh, Georgetown would win that game and and crush all all NC State's fans' dreams of a national championship that year. Probably one of the worst calls in sports history, right there between <laughs> NC State and Georgetown. It still but sounds
1: like a fresh wound for you, Stacy. <laughs> still a fresh wound,
0: but uh, yeah. But John, I mean, John is awesome, and um, I'm just really grateful that he's put his trust in in, in me, and then you know, his partner Jim as well. Both, both guys are just incredibly sharp, and they've been incredibly helpful
1: already. And lastly, uh, talking about the fan base, it must be unreal when you see articles. Well, obviously, you, you see data. You don't see articles. I read the articles. But you see articles about you averaging nearly half a million viewers for your uh, pro I- invitational in 2021, where Major League Baseball gets like 2 million viewers for a Saturday ball game that's nationally televised uh, You know, on broadcast uh, channels. Is that mind-boggling to you that, you know, baseball's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, it's on a national broadcast on a network and you're here on ESPN on like a Saturday afternoon with half a million viewers. That's got to be mind-blowing.
0: It's been pretty crazy to see some of the rankings and every now and then, you know, we'll beat out a regional baseball game or we'll beat out major league soccer and and some of these other sports that are obviously a lot more established. I think we even got Wimbledon one time in the summer. <laughs>
1: I'm sure they really love that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah, just 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 one time, so you know. But we'll take it. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been really cool to see. Um, but I still think we we've got you know we still got a lot of work to do to develop our fan base and and grow our fan base. And my goal is to increase the the number of viewers that are that are tuning in to watch us.
1: He is the former operations manager of the Greensboro City Gators, but now he is the founder and commissioner of the American Cornhole League. Stacy, it's been a blast chatting with you, and I wish you the best of luck.
0: Thanks a lot, Joe. I appreciate you having me. I had a great time chatting with you.
1: Same here, Stacy. And that's it for this edition of Uncertain Times. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you automatically get my new shows when they drop. Also, if you have a minute, I would love if you left us a review so more amazing folks like yourself can discover the show. And please don't forget the golden rule and treat others as you want to be treated. Thanks for listening. Until next time, adios! This has been a production of Forbes Books Radio. Find out more at ForbesBooksRadio.com.